Let's pray. Father, today is Memorial Day. It's all about death and sacrifice and liberty. It's heard on NPR this morning about 2019 year old boys who died on a hill in North Korea. And they didn't take the hill. The general just wanted to make a name. It didn't work. 8,000 slaughtered on Iwo Jima. About the age of this group right here. And three times as big almost. Lord, it's a heavy day. And we Christians have another set of martyrs that we love to talk about. We are so thankful for those who have laid down their lives that the gospel might advance to us, Gentiles. So as we lift up and honor one of them and the grace that sustained him this afternoon, I pray for help so that his legacy would have an effect today beyond anything he ever dreamed. Come. And help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. William Tyndale had one driving passion. He was accused of singing only one note. Namely, he wanted to see the Bible in English, common language, printed version, Translated from the Greek and the Hebrew so that ordinary folks would have access to it. The year is 1531. He is 37 years old. He's in hiding on the continent. He was English. So he's in exile out of his own country. And the king, Henry VIII, wants to get to him and bring him home. So he sends a legate, and Tyndale reads the letter that mercy will be extended if he comes back. And he sings his one note with this response to the king. I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of the scriptures, and by bare text he meant no explanatory notes. He wouldn't try to slip in any Protestant notes, though he loved the emerging Reformed faith. Just a bare text to be put forth among the people like as is put forth among the subjects of the emperor in these parts and of other Christian princes, I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more. In other words, I'll never write another book. They didn't like his books. And he's promising I'll never write another book, not abide two days in these parts. After the same, you know, after the king pledges that he'll produce this translation. But immediately to repair unto this realm, his realm and there most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will. So this translation be obtained. Until that time. I will abide the asperity of all chances whatsoever shall come and endure my life in as many pains as it is able to bear and suffer. And the king refused. And Tyndale never went home again and was strangled and burned at the stake five years later at age 42. Let's go back a few years. He's 28 years old now. 
It's 1522. He is living as a tutor in the home of a man named John Walsh, and he's a Roman Catholic priest, ordained. Coming through this home are notable Roman Catholic spokesmen, and they are entering into dialogue with Tyndale over dinner. And all the while, Tyndale is reading the Greek New Testament, which had been printed for the first time in the history of the world six years earlier. 1516, Erasmus was responsible for its printing. Up till that time, it had just been copied out by hand. And now there exists a printed Greek New Testament, and it was absolutely explosive. Europe was exploding because of this printed Greek New Testament, and Tyndale knew his Greek well and was immersed in it, and it was changing everything in his mind. One of the visitors one day in John Walsh's house was getting very uptight about Tyndale's comments about what he was reading in the Greek New Testament concerning the gospel and concerning justification in particular. This is simultaneous now with Martin Luther, their contemporaries. And this guest said this in Tyndale's ears. We were better without God's law than the Pope's. To which Tyndale responded like this. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the scriptures than you do. Four years later, 1526, Tyndale finished the English translation of the Greek New Testament in Germany, where he had had to flee. He began to smuggle it back into England, leaves in bales of cloth. He had grown up in Gloucester, which was a cloth-making district, not realizing in those days the amazing providences of God. There's nothing that happens by accident in your life. You are growing up in a place that will be by design 50 years from now. And now he knows the cloth trade and he knows people in it. And the leaves of his New Testament contraband in England are making their way home in bales of cloth. A remarkable providence. 3,000 in that first edition and they were making their way home. For the first time in history, the Greek New Testament had been translated into English. Before Tyndale, the only availability in English of the Bible was written efforts from Wycliffe and his followers, Lollards. For a thousand years, the only translation had been the Latin Vulgate. And hardly anybody could read it, and they had no access to it anyway. You just can't believe how dark that made things. Before he was martyred in 1536, Tyndale had translated into English the whole New Testament and the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament, Joshua to Second Chronicles and Jonah. That material, all of the new, that much of the old, made its way into the Great Bible, it was called. The Great Bible made its way into the Geneva Bible, and the Geneva Bible was a stunning success and had sold a million copies before 
it was replaced by the King James Version. Now, you don't get a clear idea of Tyndale's accomplishment in this until you start making some comparisons. Most of us, maybe you don't, I don't know, when you think about the dominant Bible, say, for the last 300 years, most people would say it's the King James Version, the authorized version, and that would certainly be right. What we don't know is that nine-tenths of it, wherever it overlapped with Tyndale, is the very wording of William Tyndale. You cannot overestimate the impact of a man's life and words until you say that nine-tenths of the Bible that for 300 years shaped the language and theology of the Western world came from the pen of one single man. It is simply stunning. Now, let me give you some examples of phrases that virtually everybody in this room knows and they're straight out of the head of William Tyndale almost 500 years ago. Don't assume that Greek and Hebrew come into English ready-made. They come through heads, thought. How do you do English with this? This is not easy. So when you read something in English, you're reading a translator's art. Hopefully faithful. Let there be light. I am I my brother's keeper. These are the very words of William Tyndale, and they could have been otherwise. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be merciful unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. It could have been translated another way. Today, millions of people are using the words of William Tyndale and do not know it or give him any credit or thank God for his life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There were shepherds abiding in the field. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Think of how many different ways that could have been translated. Fifty. The signs of the times. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went out and wept bitterly. That little phrase, wept Bitterly, preserved by NIV, NASB, ESV, NKG, and only a few knucklehead translations try to change it. <laughs> One of them, with the translation, he went out and cried hard. That's weak. <laughs> Leave it alone if it's really good. This is not hard English. Wept bitterly. That's William Tyndale. Almost all modern versions say you can't improve it. A law unto themselves. In him we live and move and have our being. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, fight the good fight. Talking about that tonight. Just a smattering. Danielle or Daniel, the uh, biographer that I leaned on most for this remarks that newspaper headlines today still quote Tyndale, though unknowingly, and he has reached more people than Shakespeare, though nobody knows it. Amazing. Luther's translation into German, 1522, just a few years earlier, is often praised as creating the German language. The modern German language, because it exerted such tremendous power over 
the shaping of modern German. And most people would say that about the authorized version as well, which is, in fact, Tyndale's nine-tenths of it. Here's what Daniel says. In his Bible translations, Tyndale, Tyndale's conscious use of everyday words without inversions, neutral word order, his wonderful ear for rhythmic patterns, gave to English not only a Bible language, but a new prose. England was blessed as a nation in that the language of its principal book, as the Bible in English rapidly became, the fountain from which flowed the lucidity, suppleness, and expressive range of the greatest prose thereafter. His craftsmanship with the English language amounted to genius. He translated two-thirds of the Bible so well that his translations endured until this day. Now, this was not merely a literary achievement. It was a spiritual explosion. And this is vastly more important. Tyndale's Bible and his writing were kindling that set off the Reformation in England. These were days of Reformation. You've all heard of the Reformation, mainly associated with Calvin and Luther. But in England, the kindling was laid in the Bible by William Tyndale. And indeed, the fire was put to the kindling by some of his works as well. Now, here's my question. And I want you to be like him. And this is why I'm asking this. There are things yet to be done with the Bible in this world that you should do. So that when somebody gives a talk like this in a hundred years, they'll tell your story. Or maybe it won't be told on this earth. It'll just be told in heaven, which is more important. Most of the important things in this world have not been told by men. They're just written in heaven. And we will spend eternity recounting those stories to God's grace. So what, what was the key here? What would be the key for you in order to follow him in a life like his? Two things. We must die in two ways to advance God's cause through the Bible. One, we must die to the notion that you don't have to work hard or think hard to achieve spiritual goals. We must die to that. That is, die to laziness. There are so many people who think that if you have spiritual goals and you believe in the Holy Spirit, you don't have to work hard and you don't have to think hard because that's going to rob God of His glory. That's the first thing Tyndale died to. Second, he died to the notion that thinking hard and working hard are decisive in achieving spiritual goals. Those are not contradictory. He died to the notion that thinking hard and working hard are decisive for achieving spiritual goals. They're not decisive. They're just necessary. Now, here's the Bible verse from which I'm drawing out those two lessons to apply to Tyndale. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. It goes like this. Think over what I say. This is Paul to Timothy. Think, think, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So the first half of the verse is think about my inspired apostolic writing. Use your brain, Timothy. Read and think hard about what I say. 
And then the second part of the verse is, because... Now, a lot of people would say instead of because, they'd say, instead of that, this. Because the Lord will give you understanding. Well, he's gonna, if he's going to give it, he's going to give it, you need to do this, think. No. You think. You use your brain. You work hard with the Bible. Because it's not decisive. That thinking is not decisive. God, in and through that, sometimes in spite of that, gives understanding. So I want to work with those two deaths in Tyndale's life. I think that will be key to your achievement of all spiritual triumphs. And it will was key for Tyndale. Let's compare him and Erasmus. This will get at the the key to his life. Erasmus, when I was in college, Western Civ, or literature of the Western world, we read Enchiridion, and we read Praise of Folly. I remember those two Erasmus books. And oh, how I wish somebody had said to me more than this is an example of the flourishing of Renaissance humanist liberty. Read and wonder. I wish they had said more than that. I had to wait. So I'm going to say more than that. Erasmus was a remarkable man. He was 28 years older than Tyndale, and they died in the same year. One, killed by the Roman Catholic Church, and the other, a respected member to his dying day of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's some similarities between the two before the massive difference. Similarities. Both were huge scholars. Erasmus was a Latin scholar and produced the first Greek New Testament printed. So in spite of himself, he exploded the Roman Catholic Church in England. Tyndale knew eight languages, Latin, Greek, German, French, Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, and English. Both of them loved the natural power of language. They were both part of the rebirth, awakening in those days, that produced a Shakespeare. This is such an interesting illustration of that period and how language was was exploding. Oh, that this could happen today. (laughs) without the craziness that might go with it. Erasmus wrote a book called De Copia. We get the word copious, and it was a textbook that Tyndale no doubt used at Oxford on the fullness and large possibilities of the English language. De Copia on the fullness of language. One of the assignments, now get this, this is unbelievable. One of the assignments that students had to do in this text was to write down 150 alternate ways of saying, your letter has delighted me very much. Where would an assignment like that come from? Why would anybody give you an assignment? Take, your letter has delighted me very much, and hand in tomorrow 150 other ways of saying it. Why would anybody do that? Well, this is what 
uh, Daniel said, it was to train the students to use all the verbal muscles in order to avoid any hint of flabbiness. You are flabby. And I'll tell you the word that marks your flabbiness above all other words. Like. Well, I got to be careful here because I really get bent out of shape about Christian low standards for communication. These guys really believed in the power and the beauty and the effectiveness and the lastingness of the preciousness of words on our tongue imaging forth our King Jesus who became not a flabby word, but the word. So I get too serious about this. My wife warns me, don't go there. I was a lit major. Shakespeare was born out of that milieu. One historian said, without Erasmus, no Shakespeare. Meaning, that kind of jealousy to find the fullness of language, to say yours truly in 150 ways, produces Shakespeare. Nobody has ever used language in the English language like Shakespeare. Now, all of that was just to say that Erasmus and Tyndale have in common craftsmanship. They loved language. Second, well, that, that, that's, that's two. They were scholars and they were craftsmen. Those are two similarities. Number three, the Bible should be translated into the vernacular. Erasmus said that, and Tyndale lived for it. And number four, um, both wrote about Christ and the Christian life. Erasmus, the Enchiridion, a philosophy of Jesus, philosophia Christi, philosophy of Christ. Now, here's the difference, and this is all important. The difference between Tyndale and Erasmus. And I'm getting at how Tyndale died to first laziness and now thinking that non-laziness or craftsmanship or hard work or scholarship are decisive in bringing about spiritual reformation. And Tyndale loved the theology of Martin Luther. And Luther was an abomination to Erasmus. And here the river divides, and Erasmus goes his comfortable philosophical way to his grave in esteemed by the Roman Catholic Church, and, and Tyndale goes to the flames hated by the Roman Catholic Church. Scholarship won't get you crucified. Craftsmanship won't get you crucified. It's teaching the wrong things about the gospel or the right things will get you crucified. The book that Martin Luther wrote that he loved most was On the Bondage of the Will. Tyndale was with him 100%. Here's what Tyndale wrote on that regard. And the reason it's important is to set the stage for sovereign grace. A great phrase. Our will, Tyndale wrote, is locked and knit faster under the will of the devil, then could a hundred thousand chains bind a man to a post. Because by nature we are evil, therefore 
we both think and do evil and are under vengeance, under the law, convict to eternal damnation by the law and are contrary to the will of God in all our will and in all things, consent to the will of the fiend. It is not possible for a natural man to consent to the law that it should be good or that God should be righteous, which maketh the law. End quote. So the view of human sinfulness that Luther wrote in The Bondage of the Will was echoed exactly by Tyndale's own grasp of our fallenness and our sin. Now, now Erasmus and Thomas More, who had a rabid hatred for William Tyndale. Man for All Seasons, they've seen the movie or the play, makes much of Thomas More. He hated William Tyndale. He wrote three quarters of a million words and used scatological language to damn William Tyndale. He and Erasmus abominated this theology that I just read from Tyndale. And they operated at a kind of high philosophical, academic, nuanced level that had a twang of irony and cleverness about it. Listen to what Daniel says. Something in the Enchiridion is missing. It is a masterpiece of humanist piety. But the activity of Christ in the Gospels and especially his work of salvation so strongly detailed there in the epistles of Paul is largely missing. Christologically, where Luther thunders, Erasmus makes a sweet sound. What to Tyndale was an impregnable stronghold feels in the Enchiridion like a summer pavilion. That's what I remember my, when I was reading in college. When I read the two works of, of Erasmus that we had to read when I was a freshman in college, I heard no thunder. I was just fascinated by language. That doesn't change anybody. It makes prigs. The word sophomoric is an adjective, not by accident. It means fool, right? By implication. Listen to this. Erasmus and Thomas More joked and bantered when Luther risked his life and nailed his 95 theses to the wall. Erasmus wrote in a, quote, jocular letter, including anti-papal games, witty satirical diatribes against abuses within the church, which both of them loved to make. It was all a big game. Now, I linger here between this difference, over this difference between Tyndale and Erasmus because of how amazingly it sounds to me like today. Tyndale wrote his books and translated the New Testament and there was a thundering effect. Erasmus wrote his and there was an entertaining Effect, a kind of, here's the words, highbrow, elitist, layered, nuancing of church tradition. They satirized the monasteries, and so they had a ring of radical nature about them. Clerical abuses they criticized. But the gospel, what we were singing about a few minutes ago, it wasn't at the center. 
I'm not going to name any names, but there are elitist, cool, avant-garde, marginally evangelical writers today and scholars for whom what I'm about to read here, which was written to describe Erasmus and more, is amazingly parallel. Not only is there no fully realized Christ or devil in Erasmus' book, there's a touch of irony about it at all. With the feeling of the writer cultivating a faintly superior ambiguity. As if to be dogmatic, for example, about the full theology of the work of Christ, was to be rather distasteful. I just feel that in book after book today. To be robust and strong and full about what Christ has achieved feels rather distasteful. By contrast, William Tyndale is ferociously single-minded. The matter in hand, the immediate access of the soul to God without intermediary is far too important for hints of faintly ironic superiority. Tyndale is as four square as a carpenter's tool. But in Erasmus' account of the origins of his book, there is a touch of the sort of layering of ironies found in the games with personae. End of quote from Daniel. It is ironic, and this is a warning. I hope you will hear from a dad-like guy for you. It is ironic and sad that today, supposedly avant-garde Christian writers strike a cool, evasive, imprecise, artistic, superficially reformist pose of Erasmus and call it postmodern when in fact it is totally pre-modern because it is totally permanent. It happens in every single age. It's a clever way of writing for unsuspecting people like you who don't have a lot to measure it by because your roots aren't deep yet in church history and in reading things from the 19th and 18th and 17th and 16th and 15th century so that when you open up this contemporary postmodern thing, you say, what in the Sam Hill is new about that? Don't be duped. Be thoughtful. Be thinker. Go deep. Know your history. What drove Tyndale to sing one note? I want the Bible available to you in English, to the plowboy in England in his day. I want it available. What drove him to that was his total conviction of the lostness, the bondage to sin. Blind, dead, damned, helpless people who need access to the gospel. And what made him so outrageous to Thomas More is about five words in his translation. We've been plucked, he said, out of Adam, the ground of all evil and grafted into Christ the root of all goodness. He loved the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, as our only hope. For Tyndale, hell, sin, atonement, sovereign grace, all weighty realities, and at the center of them, justification by, by faith for Erasmus and more wasn't on the horizon. And it was very, very threatening. So, don't bank 
on the lack of craftsmanship, the lack of scholarship, the lack of hard thinking. Give yourself to think hard. But die to that as the decisive thing in achieving a reformation or deceiving some great spiritual purpose that you have. Give yourself utterly to thinking hard about the Bible and depending on God in the Bible. And the doctrine of justification by faith embodies that so clearly that he was willing to die for it. Now, let me get toward those five words that Tom Smore was so upset about. Why was the Roman Catholic Church so furious at those who tried to put the Bible into English. So furious it would burn people alive who tried. Can you even fathom it? What explains that? In 1401, Parliament in England passed a law called De Heretico Comburendo on the burning of heretics. And they made heresy punishable by burning people at the stake. And they had Bible translators in view. So in 1408, Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Arundel created, quote, the Constitutions of Oxford. And this is a quote from those. It is a dangerous thing, as witnesseth blessed St. Jerome. It is a dangerous thing, as St. Jerome witnessed, to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. You know what the effect of that was? Quote, John Bale, dramatist, died in 1563, saw a boy of 11, as a boy of 11, watched the burning of a young man in Norwich for possessing the Lord's Prayer in English. John Fox records seven Lollards burned at Coventry in 1519 for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. This is the church of Rome burning parents alive for teaching the Lord's Prayer in English to their children. You ever wonder why there was a Reformation? Tyndale hoped to escape condemnation for his work, but he had to flee persecution and go to Europe, the continent, in order to escape. Why this hostility? Could you explain it? it takes your breath away. It makes you want to weep. Here are the reasons given by the church. The English language is rude and unworthy of the exalted language of God. That's crap. They knew, they knew, Erasmus knew that New Testament Greek is common language. Really common. Nothing highfalutin about it. And they knew it. Number two, 
When one translates, errors can creep in, so it is safer not to translate. Number three, the Bible is, if the Bible is in English, then each man will become his own interpreter. That's a lot closer to the truth. Some sympathy with that. Number four, only priests are given the divine grace to understand the scriptures. More baloney. Number five, a special sacramental value to the Latin service in which people cannot understand, but grace is given. Makes me want to rage against sacramentalism. You can't understand a thing going on here, but there's a sacrament in the Latin that mediates grace to the uncomprehending. There were deeper reasons, much deeper. I mentioned that there were five words in Tyndale's English translation of the Greek New Testament that caused Thomas More to fulminate against him and to bring down the wrath of the Roman church on Tyndale. Hear those words. He translated presbyteros as elder, not priest. Two, he translated ecclesia as congregation, not church. He translated metanoeo as repent, not do penance. He translated exomologeo as acknowledge rather than do confession. And he translated agape as love, not charity. And here's what Daniel commented on. He said this, Tyndale cannot possibly have been unaware that those words in particular undercut the entire sacramental structure of a thousand years of church life throughout Europe, Asia, and North Africa. It was the Greek New Testament that was doing the undercutting. What God undercut was the priesthood, the penance, and the confession. In other words, the power of the church to control was broken. England would not be a Roman Catholic country. It became a Protestant country. Now, I draw things toward a close by asking this. What did it cost Tyndale to rescue the Bible for the common people and to rescue the gospel, the church, justification by faith for the common man in England? What did it cost him? He left his homeland in 1524, 12 years before his death. Never went home again. He was killed in 1536. He gives a little glimpse of his exile life, always knowing he could be betrayed, always knowing somebody could turn him in, always knowing he could be extradited because the Roman church covered the whole of Europe. He wrote back to England once, My pains, my poverty, my exile out of my natural country, bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger wherewith I am everywhere encompassed, and finally innumerable other hard and sharp fightings which I endure. The climax of these sufferings came in two stages. First, May 21st, 1535. He was a guest in uh, the Netherlands 
And a man named Henry Phillips betrayed him. He had weaseled his way into the trust of William Tyndale, like a Judas. And then one evening, the plot was laid, and I'll read you how it happened. So, when it was dinner time, Master Tyndale went forth with Phillips, and at the going forth of Poince's house was a long, narrow entry so that two could not go in front. Mr. Tyndale would have put Phillips before him, but Phillips would in no wise but put Master Tyndale before him, for that he pretended to show great humanity. So Master Tyndale, being a man of no great stature, went before, and Phillips, a tall, comely man, followed behind him, who had set officers on either side of the door upon two seats, who being there might see that see who came in the entry. And coming through the same entry, Phillips pointed with his finger over Tyndale's head that the officers who sat at the door might see that it was he who they should take. Then they took him and brought him to the emperor's attorney, a a procurer general, where he dined. Then came the procurer general to the house of points and sent away all that was there of Master Tyndale's, as well as his books, as other things. And from thence, Tyndale went to the castle of Filford, 18 English miles from Antwerp. And there he remained until he was put to death. Eighteen months. Now, during these eighteen months, he was being examined. One of his examiners, the Roman Catholic scholars, wrote three books full of responses and criticisms as they argued doctrine. What was his charge? What would be the charge against this man that would result in his execution. The charge was heresy with not agreeing with the Roman Holy Emperor in a nutshell with being a Lutheran. That is, a lover and a teacher of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. He had a chance to write one book before he died in prison. Here's the name of it in Latin. Sola Fides Justificat Apudeum. Faith alone justifies before God. This is why he's dying. This is why he wanted to translate the Bible. This is the message that the whole world in every culture needs to hear. We are dead in Adam. We can live if our faith is in Christ, because Christ fulfilled our righteousness and covered our sin. If we, by faith, are united to Christ, our sins are covered, our righteousness is provided. This is the central message that the world so desperately needs, and it's in the Bible when properly translated. And he would lay down his life for the Bible. He would lay down his life for the doctrine. They were hard months. I'm going to read you one letter. We draw this to a close. We only have one letter from him in prison. This is it. It's addressed to an unnamed officer in the castle. It is full of pathos. I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from the cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings, 
My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that I will be kindly permitted to have a Hebrew Bible. A Hebrew grammar and a Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. He's writing to one of the guards. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tyndallus. We don't know if he ever got those requests. Cap, coat, some leggings, a lamp, and a Hebrew Bible, and a grammar to press on with his translation work. What we know is that the verdict was sealed August 1536, he was condemned, he was stripped of his priestly uh, ordination, and October 6th, he was sent to the stake, and because he had held office in the church, mercifully was strangled and then burned, instead of being burned alive, like so many. Forty-two years old. Never married, never buried. Let me end with a letter that he wrote to his best friend, John Frith, who had um, died being burned alive. Your cause is Christ's gospel, a light that must be fed with the blood of faith. If when we be buffeted for well-doing, we suffer patiently and endure, that is thankful to God. For to that end we are called, for Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps, who did no sin, Hereby have we perceived love, that he laid down his life for us, and therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let not your body faint. If the pain be above your strength, he's writing to a man who's about to be burned alive. If the pain be above your strength, remember... Whatever ye shall ask in my name, I will give it to you. And pray to our Father in heaven that he will ease your pain or shorten it. Amen. Young people, you are the heir of an amazing legacy. The Bible that you hold in your hand or have in your pack or back in your room cost Tyndale and many others their lives. So don't spare any effort in thought, any effort in work to know it. And dare I say, for several hundred of you, to give your lives to translating it. There are many languages left. Wycliffe has a goal, 2025, to have them all started by the year 2025. I wonder if you'd be part of that. 
And don't ever think that your hard work is the decisive key. The decisive key is the sovereign grace of God. He can work through you. He can work in spite of you. I just plead with you. Don't waste your life. Male or female, be like William Tyndale. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want so bad to finish well like Tyndale did. So I pray that I not be flabby with my language or flabby with my life. And I pray for these young people. Most of them have much time in front of them as men count much. Oh, that they might invest it well like Tyndale did. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.